Well, I've heard the story a couple times. I'm not sure where it began. I'm certain that it's probably true. It's something like this. That one day after church, a young boy came, came home and had a picture that he had drawn in, in Sunday school. And he gave it to his, his mom and dad, and, you know, the proud kid, and said, here you go, what is, here you go, mom and dad. And mom and dad looked at the picture, and they said, oh, what is this? And said, it's a picture of God. To which mom and dad said, we don't know what God looks like. And the little kid said, well, now we do. <laughs> you know, we, we hear that. It's kind of cute. And it makes sense, right? I mean, we are, we are all, and we see it uniquely in children, but all of us, we, we have a gift of, of creativity that is given to us by God that's intended to be stoked and used. We live in a world of wonder, right? And, and we have a, a God who is beyond our wildest imaginations, and it's, it's natural for us to want to know who he is and to want to know what he's like. So while there's something endearing about that, that story with the child, there's, there's also something in there that I think we need to, to take caution in. It was Voltaire, the, the 18th century French philosopher, who said something like this, God created us in his image, and we have ever since returned the favor. There is an abiding temptation in all humans to shape God into what we think he might be like. There's so much mystery there that we want to fill in the blanks. We want to be able to, 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 to know what he looks like, to know what he's, to know what he's like, which in one sense, that's, that's right and it's good because we are created to know him and enjoy him. We were, we were created to walk with him in the garden and, and, and then to have a relationship with him that wasn't separated because of sin. But, but now we live in a world where there is sin. And it separates us from him. And we're unable to know who he is. And we're unable to approach him apart from his telling us what he's like. Which is what the second commandment is all about. The Ten Commandments, as they are known, also known as the Ten Words, begin in Exodus chapter 20. God has delivered his people from uh, slavery in Egypt, some 400 years of living there. He's brought them through with miraculous plagues and delivery through the, the Red Sea. And then he brings them out to Mount Sinai, where he descends in a, a cloud of fire, and he speaks to Moses to give to Moses the commandments, the law that will help them to know who God is and how they should relate to him. And we're slowing down in this section of scripture to, to meditate on it. Look at chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Jason reminded us last week as we began this that the, the Ten Commandments here, this, and then beyond that, the 613 in total, are not given to Israel in order for them to know how to get saved. In, in order for them to know how to become God's people. He's already saved them. They already are his people. He's giving the commands to teach them how to now live as God's people in the world in which they, they find themselves, how to relate to him. And then what we have, the way the Ten Commandments are laid out is, is, is kind of two sections. Commandments one through four are about how we relate to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make anything that looks like me. Don't mess with my name. Don't mess with my day. Those are all vertical uh, commandments. And then he goes horizontal. 
Love God, now you're going to love your neighbor. Don't kill anybody. Be faithful in marriage. Honor your mother and father. Don't steal from one another. Don't tear down one another's reputations through lying about them. Don't covet what God has given to other people and has not given to you. He, he, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus would summarize it. Those are the Ten Commandments. We're in commandment number two, following the first one, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Now the second, similar. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is what's commonly known as the second commandment. So the first commandment is about only worshiping God. The second commandment is about rightly worshiping God who you worship, and then how you worship and how you don't. And the heart of it is, don't use an image to worship me. That's what God says. Now, what's forbidden here is to not make for yourself an image, an idol, a representation of anything in all of creation, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the water. Don't, don't make an image of anything like that to assist you in the, the worshiping of me, or saying that it's me. Now what he's not doing is he's not forbidding the making of images of, uh, in creation generally. So this is not saying that you can't sculpt a bird or paint a tulip or make images generally about things that are in creation. Uh, he's not forbidding that. Nor is he forbidding the making of images uh, of creation, uh, of things in creation that might, uh, that might be part of worship for instance, in the tabernacle and the temple, there were depictions of almond trees, of oxen, pomegranates, angels. Some of those things were, were part of, of the worship that God prescribed. But what is forbidden is the making of an image to represent God in worship. Making an idol or making an image and saying, this is God or this is what God is like. That is strictly forbidden, and for good reason, because it completely distorts who God is. There's no way you can come up with a thing and it be right. It's only ever going to be wrong and confuse you about who God really is. Can anybody think of like the example of this that's not many chapters away from this one? The golden calf, okay? The golden calf situation. If you want, you can follow along in chapter 32. So if you want to go a couple, fast forward a little bit in the story to chapter 32. Moses is up on the mountain. He's been up there a minute, uh, a bunch of minutes actually, and so much so that the people are getting impatient and being like, where'd Moses go? Listen, forget him. Let's just, we, get, we need a God to worship. While there's a blazing fire up on the mountain. Okay, this is kind of how, anyway. Um, Exodus 32, 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, stop it, you idolaters. That's not what it says at all. That's what he should have said. Rather, he said to them, take off your rings of gold and bring them to me. Verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold and brought them to Aaron. Verse 4. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw this. He built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That play is the word about engaging in immorality. They, they made an idol here. They praised the idol for doing what? Bringing them out of Egypt. Aaron called it Yahweh. They, they made a feast. They brought offerings to it. This is exactly what God forbid. Now, have you ever wondered why he went with the golden calf? Like, of all the things that he could have made, why, why the golden calf? Why that one, right? Where have they been for the past 400 years? They've been in Egypt. One of the chief gods in Egypt is represented by a bull. This is what you call syncretism. The mixing of the worship of the one true God with false worship, with the worship of idols. It, what they did was they merged the culture's perception of God with the worship of the one true God. They, they wanted to have the best of both worlds. Brothers and sisters, golden calf making never goes out of style. In every single age, God's people are tempted to mix the world's perception of God with who the true God is. The world constantly, constantly calls to give God a makeover, to make him less threatening and more accepting, less glorious and, and more approachable, less holy and more like us. Golden calf making, idol making, is a, it's a wicked thing because what it does is it, it drags God's image down rather than exalt him. You cannot rightly represent God with an idol. Something else to just notice in the text here is that idol worship is progressive. Did you catch the verbs of what he tells them not to do? Don't make one. Don't do what? Bow down to it, right? Don't worship it and don't serve it. You notice how they're all connected there? And this is important because we were created to know God, to love God, to serve God. That's the right response. And sin always wants to hijack the good desires that God has in us and use it in ways that bring dishonor to God and steal life from us. 
Sin always wants to hijack those, those good desires. So God gives commands like this to, to guard us from giving ourselves to anything less than himself as he truly is. Because he's worthy of that kind of worship and because he loves us and knows that our best comes when we enjoy God for who he is, not for some other God. He's guarding our worship because what we worship and how we worship matters. You become like what you worship. This is, this is true. When you worship God for as he is, you become more like Christ. You become more like him. You become godly, not worldly. Those are, those are terms. It means you, you look like the Lord. You're created in his image, right? You're created in God's image. And as you obey him and walk, it reflects something of what God's, God's like. It's also true in a bad sense. When we worship idols, you become like those idols. Listen to this from Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. So if your God is money, or your God is, is sex, or power, or fame, you will become like those things. Ruthless, selfish, oppressive, deceitful, using others rather than serving others. This is exactly what happened with the golden calf. They made God out to be powerful, yet without purity. Which is exactly like the idols of, of Egypt and all the idols of the nations. It's always God's big, and if you can placate him and make him happy, then, then he'll, he'll, you know, he'll do a deal for you, and the way you should worship him is through some sort of vile immorality. This is, this is one of the, the great pictures here with the golden calf of the danger of indulging in idolatries that leads to, to immorality. Another thing that's important to note here is that how we relate to this command has lasting effects. Did you catch that? Look again at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, these idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What he's saying is that those who engage in idolatry endanger the generations that come after them. What this is not is some kind of generational curse. Any of you come from a background where you heard about generational curses? Okay, that's not in the Bible. So that's not what this is talking about. This is, there's no such thing as a generational curse where you're doomed to be under some sort of demonic oppression or some kind of miserable life of punishment because your great-great-grandpa went to India and bowed down to some idol. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not in the scripture, okay? God makes this really clear, actually, in, in Exodus, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. He says, the soul who sins is the soul that shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Everyone is accountable for themselves before God. You are not held guilty for the sins of your parents, however many they may be. Nor are you imputed with the righteousness of your parents, however wonderful they may have been. We each have a standing before God that is on our own. 
but that but our lives are informed by the people who came before us. You're not determined by it, but you are affected by it. And God is saying here that, that to disobey him, which by the way, did you catch that? To disobey him, he likens that to what? Hating him. I will not obey you. I do not want to look like you. I do not want to walk in your ways. You will not rule over me. That's what disobedience is. We might not couch it like that because that sounds really reverent and inappropriate, but that's what's happening. He says that is hatred toward me. In the same way that obeying him is what? Loving him. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Lord, change me. I want to be like you. I want to know you. I don't want to be like, like the way I naturally am. Change me. Make me more like you. He says, that's loving. That's worshipful. So, so God is saying here that there's real effects. The effects of sin are real in this life and in the life to, to come. So if your parents engaged in idolatry, they will suffer for their sins if they didn't repent of it. And if you follow in their example, you will suffer as well. Idolatry, in this sense, is contagious. Sin has lasting consequences. So, so just beware, please, children, whether young or older, beware of following your parents' ways if they aren't following God. And I mean this with all charity. Do if your parents and their tradition and their way and their lifestyle is leading to eternal judgment, do not follow them there simply because they are your parents. Far too many have just said, well, I could never, I could never break from what my family did. This is just the way we do it. That is slavery to sin. Please do not follow that path. On the day of judgment, we will give an account for our lives, and there's no blame shifting on that day. And as terribly sobering as the warning is, the promise is wonderfully sweet. Verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, keep, who love me and keep my commandments. Do you see how much more abundant his mercy is here? It just eclipses these warnings of judgment. Because God loves to give mercy. Judgment is this strange work. Just as disobedience has enduring effects, so does obedience. To love God is to obey him. And again, we will not inherit the blessing for our parents' obedience, but if we, if they walk in ways of resisting sin and following God and pursuing him, if you follow in that path, in that example, then you too will enjoy the steadfast love of God. And I want you to know, it is not too late for that to begin happening right now. There is no sweeter thing than to see, when you read through like the Old Testament and you see these kings and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, they did evil in the sight of the Lord as their father had done, they did evil in the sight of the Lord as their father had done, and then all of a sudden there's a king who says, and he did not walk in the way of his fathers, but he followed the Lord. That can happen to you, no matter where you've been or what you've done. I don't know how many of you were there, but a number of years ago, uh, Mike McKinley did uh, Delray's uh, uh, men's retreat. And one of his opening illustrations was about the McKinley family line. Mike McKinley's a pastor out at Sterling Park Baptist Church and um, faithful, good, godly brother, even though he likes the Philadelphia Eagles, which is not so good. But anyway, um, he, 
he starts his, he starts by telling us about his family, his family line. And he says the McKinley line for hundreds of years was marked by hatred, murder, thievery, adultery, lying, stealing, drunkenness, divorce, generation after generation after generation. That was what McKinley meant. He said, and my parents were no different. He said, my mother and father, they committed adultery on one another. They were drunkards. They were, and they, they did that. They sinned against one another, and they got a divorce. He said, and then they both met Jesus. And he said, and Jesus changed them. And they repented of their sin. And they got remarried. And he said, Mike said, I grew up in a house where the flood of sin met a dam of the grace of Christ. And he says, now the McKinley line is different. He says, God's grace intervened in my parents' lives, and now my children are growing up in a house very different than any other McKinley kids ever did. I think that's what this text means. That there is hope laid out before you. No matter what your family line has been like, you don't have to fall into that way of idolatry that steals life, and there is a way of grace that gives life. Know it through the Lord Jesus. There's a way out, and it's through him. Now, as Jason mentioned, one of the things we want to do after we think about what this text means, which we've, we've just done, is, is to contemplate three questions in each of these, these sermons to help us kind of digest it just a little bit more. Those three questions are, what kind of God would command this? What kind of God would command this? Secondly, what kind of people would need this command? And then thirdly, how do we obey this command? All right? So let's, in light of all of this, let's, what, what kind of God would command this? Remember, these commands are given to help us to know who God is so that we can love him and trust him and obey him. It was uniquely given to the people of Israel under the old covenant uh, to which they were going to be a set-apart people in a physical place, all preparing them for the coming of Christ who ushers under a new covenant. But nevertheless, the truths about God remain about who he is and his character. So what kind of God would command this? Well, first thing here, a transcendent God. God wants us to know he's a transcendent God. Listen to this from Exodus 19, 18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. God is transcendent, which means he's beyond us. So much so that when he approached he had to set out all this smoke and fire so that Moses couldn't see him because if Moses saw him, he would die. That's why a priest, whenever he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he needs to do incense first and smoke and fill the whole place because God's presence is going to dwell. And if you look upon him, you die. He's beyond us. He's greater than us. A God who would say, don't make anything that looks like me is a God who can't be represented by anything that we could come up with. No, no visible image can rightly reflect an invisible God that we could come up with. No finite picture that we could, could come up with could capture the infinite God. Any image that we would come up, uh, come up with only diminishes who he is. He's a transcendent God. Second thing, which he says for himself here in 20 verse 5, is that he's a jealous God. 
So he's a transcendent God. He's beyond us. He's also a, a jealous God. He's a passionate God. He's passionate for his people. 20 verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, these idols, these images, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, for many of us, jealousy initially registers as a negative quality. How many of that, when you hear jealousy, you think, you know, crazy ex or something, whatever it is. Like, you think, you think something that's kind of a negative thing, right? And sometimes it is. There's a, a feeling of, of resentment because of, of rivalry with someone else. Because maybe of what they have, or what they've done, or who they know, or where they go, that there's, there's a resentment that's there. So that's a sinful jealousy. That's not what we're talking about here. And hopefully after you think about it a little bit more, you, there's, there's likely also recognize that there's, there's a jealousy that could be a good quality, right? For instance, I, I love my, my wife with, with zeal, with passion. And, you know, if some dude comes over and tries to hold her hand, there is going to be a righteous sort of anger and jealousy that's going to, that's going to rise up in me. Right? It's, a, it's an appropriate, good, righteous thing. That is more in the direction of what God is talking about here. God's jealousy is not rooted in any sense in him being needy or insecure or, or greedy. God is not up in heaven like, oh, you've got an idol. You hurt my feelings. Like, there's none of that kind of nonsense with God. He's not weak like that. God's not greedy and covetous. It's because he is glorious and there's none like him. And because he loves those that he calls his own. And I want you for me. You're mine, he said. And what, what God's doing on Mount Sinai is he's making a covenant with them, with Israel. Uniquely calling them his own. He gives, he gives his law to guard the relationship with him. To guard it from temptation to spiritual adultery. Remain faithful to me as I remain faithful to you. There's an exclusivity in the love that God has between his people and his people are supposed to have with him. That's what this commandment is, is rooted in. That's what this jealousy of, of God means. And to be honest with you, it's, it's one of God's most endearing qualities. Think about that. God so loves his own glory that he guards it with zeal and vigilance because it's good for us. It'd be bad if God didn't, if he changed it with something else. There's no hope, right? And it's good because our hope and our joy and our peace and our security depends on God remaining who he is. And then he says, with that kind of good God, he says, and I want you, I love you, and I want all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. I want all of you. A wonderful thing that God, not, he's not some absentee father who doesn't care, who doesn't even know if you're on the planet anymore. He doesn't just spin the globe and then go off to wherever. No, he's a God who is transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's near, and because he's near, he is jealous for those who he makes covenant with. And this is not just an Old Testament quality of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 22, in the context of idolatry, Paul tells the, or asks the church in Corinth, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy by giving ourselves to idols? And the answer is what? No, of course not. Instead, we ought to be devoted to walk with him in humility and love and devotion because he has so loved us. We love him because he is, he's first loved us. 
So he's a transcendent God. He's a, he's a jealous God. And he is a gracious God. He is a gracious, imminent, personal, good God. Though he is transcendent, he became imminent to show us what he is like so that we can know him. How did he do this? Through Jesus. Through sending his son Jesus. Listen to this. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus came among us in the flesh to show us what God is like. Jesus to Philip in John 14, 9 says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Not that the Father and the Son are the same person, but he reveals the nature and the essence of the Father. God is so gracious that he came among us by taking on humanity. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. The God-man was among us. Listen, we, we are forbidden from worshiping any and all images of God made by people. But there is one image of God we're not only allowed to worship, but we are commanded to worship. And what is that image? It's Jesus Christ. Listen to this, Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image, the image of the invisible God. He's the idol of God. He's the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us what Satan thinks about that. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan's constant work is to do whatever he can to keep people from seeing Jesus as he truly is as the image of God. That's what he constantly wants to do. He wants to distort. Did God really say? Hebrews 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And of this one, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels are commanded to worship Jesus. We are commanded to worship Jesus. There is an image that you bow down before, and his name is Jesus. God says, you can't make anything that's going to represent me, but I'm going to come down among you. I'm going to show you what I'm like. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You see him in all of his splendor, all of his humility, all of his glory, all of his love, all of his faithfulness. You see him. That is the image of God. So what kind of God would command us to not make images of him? A God who cares enough about his glory and our joy to say, let me show you who I am by coming down to you, living alongside you, dying for you, rising for you, and calling you to believe in me. He's a God worthy of worship. So what kind of God would command that? That kind of God. Now, what kind of people would need this command? Well, the second command is part of the law given to Israel. They, they needed it because they were prone to assimilating the understanding of God with that of the nations around them. 
what we saw happen in the golden calf. God gave this command to curb their, their creativity and to guard their affections. It would be wrong of us, however, to read that and be like, those Israelites were pretty stupid. If you read through the Old Testament, all you can think is, look at how dumb they are. I think you're missing the fact that the Old Testament's intended to be a mirror to say, well, they sure look a lot like you, don't they? That's what's intended to do, to say, man, we're a whole lot like them. We need the same instruction, don't we? We are also tempted to remake God according to our own imaginations, to reshape our perception according to the world's perception. And there's a couple ways that Christian traditions have, have, have done this. Uh, I, I, let me give you a brief word on the one that most in this congregation would likely not fall into, and that is to try to approach God through physical idols or relics. So some of you may come out of traditions where that were relics were part of the way that you would approach God. So I just would say if you're visiting this morning from a Roman Catholic church or an Orthodox tradition, first of all, we're thankful that you're here. We're, we're encouraged that you're here. We'd love to talk with you more about what this means and anything else that's going on here and what it means to, to follow the Lord Jesus. My encouragement to you, and I think God's word for us here, would be to beware of going beyond what Scripture prescribes. Beware of coming up, reaching for physical things that are going to help you to, to understand God and that apart from them you can't understand Him. One of my children recently had a, a teacher tell them that, that, that the, without the relics that they're actually in, in danger of not being able to understand God as much as they, they otherwise could. That's in a Christian school. So you have to be beware, okay? Some of you have never seen these sorts of things. When I went to Europe, I mean, it was, it was amazing, the sorts of things. I mean, you would have a splinter from the cross in one church. You have Jesus' baby blanket in another one. You, there was this one uh, where they actually had the baby blanket, but you know what I'm saying. Like they had, there was this other one where there was a bottle that had a, a saint's finger in it because they had evidently touched something holy, so they kept it in a jar, and people would just crowd around it and pray and think that they were, because they were close to this saint's finger that touched something holy, they were closer to God. I just want you to know, please, if you're tempted in that way, I just want you to know that God would say, don't lean on those sorts of things to try to draw near to me. We walk by faith and not by sight, and the Lord Jesus came and he gave us everything that we need. We'd love to talk with you more about it. And also a word for those of you who may be among us who struggle with the other kind of way our tradition goes, much more free, and you miss some of the reverence and the high church vibe. I, I understand a bit of that. I just want to encourage you to beware. Diving into traditions that are marked by the other is an overcorrection, I think, that leads to danger as well. Happy to talk about that if that's where you are. Now... People in our tradition are tempted in a different direction, though, where, where a lack of, of caution with our creativity can erode a, a scriptural portrayal of who God and who Jesus really are. We can, we can begin to think like the world thinks about, about Jesus. So this week, I've been looking up Jesuses in pop culture. I found all kinds of things. So I, I remember the white Jesus, right? So when I grew up, I, was, I grew up in a Methodist church, and there was this big painting of white Jesus in a bathrobe where it looked like he was in a bathrobe, and he just looked like he was a dude from Denver. You know, he just, that's what he looked like, and that was, that was, that was who Jesus was. This week I've seen pictures of a black Jesus, 
right, where some African-American communities and their churches will adopt a, a black Jesus. I've seen pictures of Asian Jesus and Hispanic Jesus. Uh, we vacation in Myrtle Beach sometimes, and I remember there was a billboard there of Rambo Jesus where he, was, he shed the first blood, and for anybody who doesn't repent, they'll get their shed as well. It's a picture of Rambo Jesus. Um, I saw a, a, a picture of a sign um, from January 6th with Jesus wearing a MAGA hat as the mascot of, of kind of political hope. Saw a picture recently of Jesus cloaked in a rainbow with his accepting arms extended to anybody who needs an affirming Jesus. Movies do this well. A number of years ago, there's a movie which I'm referencing, not recommending, Dogma, um, where the Catholic Church needed to do a kind of a, a renewing of their image uh, to replace the Jesus on the cross, crucifix Jesus, because that's kind of you know, kind of off-putting. So, in order to, um, yeah, in order to, to make it more relevant, they came up with Buddy Jesus, which is a statue of Jesus given a, a pointing at you and giving a thumbs up. He's, he likes. He's your buddy. He's Buddy Jesus. And then there's Talladega Nights, where uh, a movie in recent history where Ricky Bobby, who's a uh, race car driver, prays at dinner. And it begins something like this. Dear infant, dear tiny infant Jesus. Where his wife Carly interjects, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. Ricky replies, I like the Christmas Jesus uh, best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And then his friend Cal interjects, and listen to this. He says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Now listen, I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. Now, when you're in a movie theater and you hear that, everybody roars with laughter. But with the backdrop of this command, it should cause us some sobriety. To say, you know what, there really is a temptation to remake Jesus as we want him to be, right? I did this when I was in high school. So I went to church, went to youth group. I was baptized multiple occasions. They weren't actually baptisms. I wasn't a believer, but that's something else. But I, my perception of Jesus was, was kind of a mix of travel agent Jesus and caddy Jesus and advisor Jesus. So travel agent Jesus, I wanted him to just kind of help me make it through life so I didn't destroy my life. I wanted to have a good life. Um, I needed a caddy because if I ever got in trouble, I needed some advice on how to get out. And then I just needed advisor Jesus for I'm not sure what to do here or there. That was kind of the way that I perceived Jesus. And I thought he was totally fine with all of my sin because I was still alive and things were good. I recreated him into the image of what I wanted him to be like. God warns us to not do that. Any conception of God that we create will be a corruption of who he truly is. So let's move from, from something cultural like that to, to more kind of in here. Not that we can't be affected by that. I think you need to be aware that many of us can be affected by those sorts of things. But what about, how should we think about making, consuming, and sharing images of Jesus? Let's say paintings of Jesus or drawings of Jesus or maybe children's books with with, with pictures of Jesus in it, or sculptures of Jesus, or movies, or TV shows that portray Jesus. So, 
How should we think about this? Are people free to, let's just say, watch the, the popular TV series, The Chosen, that has had some 100 million viewers and is being translated into some 600 languages? Is that, a, is that a fine thing for Christians to do? Is it a good thing for Christians to do? Is it a dangerous thing? Is it a wrong thing? Does it violate the second commandment? I do want to say that I think there's a distinction between drawing an image of God, the uncreated, invisible one whom we do not know, God the Father, God the Spirit, the eternal Son of God, and making an, a depiction of the God-man. I think there's a, we have to at least acknowledge there's some distinction there, but it doesn't just give us freedom to then just do whatever. And I just want to say, I'm, the, the counsel I'm going to give here comes as one who, I've, I've watched the passion, I watched the passion of the Christ when it came out, I actually showed it in the, I had a, we had a viewing in our church of that movie when it came out uh, as a way to try and reach the community as an evangelistic uh, endeavor. I was part of showing the Jesus film in, as an evangelistic tool in the Amazon jungles, um, and, and when I did all those things, I never even considered the second commandment. It was just never even on my radar. Now, as we walk through this, what I don't want to do is unnecessarily bind someone's conscience. There is a danger in freedom, and there's also a danger in over-prescribing. So I, I, want to, I want to not do that. But I think it's very important for us to understand that because images of Jesus can affect the way we think about the true Jesus... We must engage with them humbly, carefully, and thoughtfully. I think J.R. Packer's word to us here is very important. Uh, the statement, I like to think of God as, should never be trusted. I like to think of God as, should never be trusted. An imagined God will always be an imaginary God. So keep that in mind. So if someone says, hey, which I've had this conversation a number of times, somebody says, hey, have you seen The Chosen? I love it. Okay, tell me, tell me more about it. You know, and then one of the things I want to ask is, why, why do you watch the show? Okay. Now there's different responses. One response might be, well, hey, I'm free in Christ and I'm going to watch it. Okay. I just want to say that just because we're free to do something doesn't mean that we should. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Just because you want to do something is not a good reason to do it. Freedom in Christ requires maturity and humility. Freedom that is just, I'm free, I can do whatever, that's a mark of immaturity that becomes dangerous to yourself and to others. Freedom in Christ is always intended to lead to, to purer worship and edification of others. And, and we have to understand that images of Jesus do impact how we think about Jesus. Uh, we've read this Jesus Storybook Bible with all of our kids, and there's images of Jesus in there. And every single one of our kids at some point has asked what question? Is that what... Jesus looked like. Every one of them has asked that. And it makes sense, right? Again, we're created to want to see him, to want to know him, to want to, is that who he is? We want that, and that's good. But we've got to be able to take the, 
the time to say, Jesus, first of all, no, he's not a cartoon. And on top of that, he, we don't know what he looked like. And give opportunity to talk about what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Well, think about, again, with The, with the, the Chosen, um, which I've watched a, a, a number of the, the episodes. What, just what, what if a movie shows scenes from Jesus' life that aren't in the scriptures? Or what if the person who's playing Jesus has lines that aren't part of the revealed canon? Could that affect you? Could it, could it affect your, your non-Christian friend who you're, you're maybe watching these shows with in order to, to help them understand more about Jesus? If you think it can't affect you, I just say, be very careful. I remember a number of years, I preached a sermon from Exodus. And as soon as the sermon was over, this guy made a beeline. I'm talking about a grown man. Made a beeline to me, and he said, now, Pastor, I appreciate your sermon this morning, but, but you know that's not really how the story goes. And I said, what do you mean? And he recounted for me how Charlton Heston in his movie, like, and he just, he told me how it went in the movie. He's a grown man. He's, I mean, I just, are you above that? Am I above that? I just want to say we need to be careful before we shrug it off. I've had people tell me, well, the, the chosen has so helped me. It's so helped me understand God and understand Jesus. Possibly. To which I think we need to follow up another question. And this, it's, the question goes something like, can I ask you, can I ask you how, how much time are you spending reading the scriptures? I, I don't mean that legalistically and pharisaically. You can say that with, oh yeah, you reading your Bible, fool. Like that's not, that's not what we're talking about. And by the way, if somebody asks you that kind of question and it irritates you, I just want to caution you. Please. It is godly to challenge one another about how we're doing with spending time with the Lord in his word and in prayer. Do not get easily offended because of some kind of insecurity and just think, well, everybody's judging me because I don't read the Bible because I watch, you know, I watch The Chosen. Well, I just want to say, just be careful. That's a very dangerous posture. It's also very dangerous to think that a movie could give you that something that God's word could not. Christians are a people of the scripture. We grow not by seeing visual depictions of Jesus, but by seeing Jesus with the eyes of our heart revealed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. So if you walk away from a movie about Jesus or a show about Jesus and said, I never thought about Jesus like that, but that's, that's so cool. Or now I understand more about what the disciples were like. Just please hear what you're saying. No, you don't. No, you don't. You understand more of what an artist's rendition of Jesus and the disciples are like. There is so much that God does not tell us, and all of us, I mean, who wishes there was just more, like seven more Gospels? Do we just get all this stuff? John says, all the things Jesus did, if they were all recorded, couldn't fill all the books of the world. I'm like, I want those books. Tell me more, right? So it's good to want that, but it's dangerous to think that you can have it apart from God giving it to you. So I'm not telling you to not watch it. I'm just saying you need, to, you need to think about it. Because if we aren't careful, we can begin to undermine the sufficiency of Scripture in our hearts and minds. 
God's word is sufficient to tell us everything that we need to know, even if it doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. For instance, the passion of the Christ. No matter how gruesome one portrays the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, it can never begin to capture the unfathomable horror of the Father pouring out his wrath on his Son. There's no way you can capture that. And you can actually walk away from the crucifixion thinking that the worst thing that happened in that moment was that Jesus was tortured. That the most important the most significant thing that you remember about the cross is how bloody it was and all the medical descriptions that go with it. That is serious. And any, any rendering of Jesus that strips him of the glory of his crucifixion is also an error. But believe me, the, the greatest work that happened there was that the Father laid upon he who knew no sin, the sin of us who did sin, so that in him he might be the propitiation, the satisfaction for the wrath of the Father that we might be reconciled. You can't capture that in a movie. So again, I'm not saying you can't watch it, but I'm saying you've got to understand how limited it is, which is why God gives this, this command. If anything, this is intended to move us to open our Bibles, to say, teach me, which I've heard that from some people who have watched the chosen. They're like, you know what? I liked it. It was compelling. It was marvelous. I mean, I, I cried and like, like, but it made me want to know, what does God's word really say? I want to know this true Jesus. He can, yes, God can use those things. And if that's the way that it's working, okay. But I'm just saying, please, with whatever it may be, be thoughtful, intentional, discerning, wise, humble. So in conclusion, how should we obey this command? Number one, be shaped by scripture, not speculation. Have your view of God shaped by scripture, not by speculation. The antidote to approaching God through idolatry is to respond to what he says he is like in his word. That's the antidote to idolatry. It's to say, I don't want any kind of image any y'all or me can come up with because it is insufficient. Show me yourself in the word. That's why every time I get up here before I preach, I pray, God, open our eyes that we might see. We need him to show us with eyes of the heart that are beyond. We walk now by, by faith and not by, by sight. Spend more time in scripture hearing what God says about himself than before a screen viewing someone else's idea of what God is like. So if you spend more time watching The Chosen than you do reading the Bible, I want to say you're in grave spiritual danger, especially if you feel like you're getting something out of it from a Mormon's portrayal of Jesus. Be aware. Ask Jesus to guard your, your heart. So be shaped by scripture, not speculation. Secondly, this is a rabbit trail that I am not gonna go down very far at all, but slightly edifying, so hang with me. Reminder that we are created in God's image. So here it is. Be devoted to rightly imaging God. Be devoted to rightly imaging God. Remember that you're created in God's image. When you obey his word, you reflect his love for all to see. 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. So when we, when we obey God's word, we show what he's like. We show his, 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 his love to the world. In the same way, when we sin, we lie about who God is. That's what all these commandments are about, right? Especially, think about the way we were, so 
do not murder because God is not one who unjustly takes lives. He gives life. Obey your parents. Think about how Jesus honored the Father during, during his time on earth. Do not commit adultery. God is faithful, so don't you be unfaithful. Don't lie because God never lies. Don't steal because God never takes what's not his. Don't covet because everything God gives you is sufficient. So when you, when you sin, you lie about who God is. So be devoted to rightly imaging God, which you grow in by walking according to the scripture. Thirdly, delight in God's revealed image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Study him. Spend time with him. Allow God's word to, to paint a picture of faith that nothing else in this world ever could. And that will keep all other pictures in their proper place. Spend time with him. Go deep with him. Know that it's interesting, John, 1 John 1, the disciples, are, John's like, we saw him, we touched him, but he never tells you anything. He was 6'1", had dark hair, he never did any of that. We saw him though, he lived, he was on the earth. He tells us what we need to know. Ask God to help you to delight in his revealed image in Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the image of God who died for makers of false images so that they could be forgiven and reconciled with the Father and be remade in his image. That's who Jesus is. Delight in him. And then finally, desire with all of your heart, and please God to help, plead with God to help you to do so. Desire to see God's unveiled image in glory. Read scripture with the hope that one day faith will become sight. Revelation chapter 22, the pinnacle of the Bible. The whole thing's moving to one scene, 22-4. And they will see his face. That's the, that is the hope of the believer. One day, faith will be no more. Hope will be realized, and we will be with him and see him in glorified bodies that can endure the glory because we'll be made like him and enjoy him forevermore. The, the more that's your delight and desire, the more that everything else just, just fades away. Just fades away. Set your heart on the day when faith will give way to sight. And that day we will see him and we will understand him in a way that no attempt down here could ever, could ever capture. It'll be better than we ever imagined. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to receive it and to believe it. Would you give us wisdom and insight? Give us discernment. Would you guard us from, yeah, uh, immaturely embracing freedoms that, that just allow us to do whatever we want to do? And would you also guard us from over-prescriptive legalism? God, we need... We need mature faith that knows how to navigate life rightly. And Lord, we, we need help from your word, from your spirit, from one another. So would you, would you give grace to us in that? Lord, as we prepare to, to sing and then see a baptism, oh Lord, would you warm our hearts toward Christ? Lord, help even these songs that have scripture weaved in, would you help us to hear it and to receive it and to believe it? And Lord, would you hasten the day when faith will become sight? soon, Lord Jesus, in his name.